Hello, this is William Fink of Christagenia.org. Today is Friday, December 16th, 2016. This is Christagenia Internet Radio. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight I must apologize in advance for having had a sore throat all week. Not really, but I probably will need to. I'm not really sick and have no other symptoms other than a raspy voice and occasionally flowing sinuses. It's kind of strange. Hopefully it has subsided enough so as to be tolerable this evening. I almost considered playing some pre-recorded material from Arthur Lee, which he has graciously offered but we will say that for the weeks to come, I pray. I really didn't want to present Hebrews chapter 11. I really did want to present Hebrews chapter 11 in a single evening, but it just wasn't possible. Hopefully we'll be, we, we will be able to complete it in two evenings. This is part 13 of our presentation of Paul's epistle to the Hebrews. It's subtitled, the substance of the faith. Throughout the first 209 verses of this epistle to the Hebrews, Paul has argued that Yahshua Christ is the son who was promised in the Psalms of David, and he is the Lord which David had anticipated, to whom also the Melchizedek priesthood was appointed forever. Paul also explained that his coming had marked the initiation of the new covenant for the children of Israel promised in Jeremiah chapter 31, which Paul had also cited. Because these things in the prophets had now come to pass, Paul had argued that the Levitical priesthood and the works of the law which it dispensed, the ritual sacrifices and ceremonies, were eclipsed by this new practice of the faith in Christ something which was actually the expectation of the prophets from the beginning. Doing this, Paul also discussed some of the other implications of the coming of the new covenant in Christ, especially making point of the fact that apart from Christ, there is no other propitiation for sin, and for that reason, with Christ alone, man has access to God. Now, here in Hebrews chapter 11, Paul discusses the faith of the ancients and how they did the things which they were credited with because of this faith which had now come in the person of Christ. Paul, speaking to so-called lost Israelites of the Assyrian captivity, wrote in Galatians chapter 3 that the writing has enclosed all under fault or sin in order that the promise from the faith of Yahshua Christ would be given to those who are believing. But before the faith was to come, we had been guarded under the law, being enclosed to the faith destined to be revealed. So the law has been our tutor for Christ, in order that from faith we would be deemed righteous. But the faith having come, no longer are we under a tutor, for you are all sons of Yahweh through the faith in Yahshua Christ. Now, of course, in the wider context of Paul's epistle, especially, 
That does not mean that anyone who claims to believe something is the Son of God. Rather, the faith in Christ must be in accordance with the promises of the Old Testament which Christ had come to fulfill. For that reason, Paul informed these Hebrews that Christ is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called the children of Israel, might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. And for that reason, Paul also told the Galatians that just as we also, in Galatians chapter 4, that just as we also, when we were infants, we were held subject under the elements of the society. And when the fulfillment of the time had come, Yahweh had dispatched his son, having been born of a woman, having been subject to law, in order that he would redeem those subject to law that we would recover the position of sons. And as we've seen here in Hebrews, that society of which Paul speaks was founded at Mount Sinai with the Levitical priesthood. That's the scope of the word world, the Abrahamic, the Adamic society, which was formed with the rise of the children of Israel. So according to Paul of Tarsus, Yahshua Christ is the faith that was to come. And Yahshua Christ is the faith destined to be revealed, as he attests in Galatians 3.23. Then Paul explains here in Hebrews chapter 11, at verse 13, that these Old Testament saints whom he is about to describe had acted in faith not receiving the promises, but having seen them from afar. And the references to the assurance of the promises they had in Christ, the preservation of which was the reason that the children of Israel were then enclosed under the law, which Paul had also explained in Galatians. So to Paul of Tarsus, for both Israelites of the dispersion, such as the Galatians, and Israelites of the circumcision, such as the Hebrews. Yahshua Christ is the end of the faith, in the sense of being its fulfillment, and he was not the beginning of some strange new faith, as the denominational churches may claim. As Paul had said concerning this faith, in Romans chapter 4, Therefore, from of the faith that in accordance with favor, then the promise is to be certain to all of the offspring, and not to that of the law only, but also to that of the faith of Abraham, who is father of us all. Just as it is written that a father of many nations I have made you, before Yahweh whom he trusted, who raises the dead to life, and calls things not existing as existing who contrary to expectation in expectation believed, for which he would become a father of many nations according to the declaration. Thus your offspring will be. Of course, there were neither Israelites, Judeans, Galatians, or Romans. When Yahweh made those promises to Abraham, as they are but some of the many nations which later came from Abraham's seed with the understanding that according to Paul, 
Christ is the objective of the faith of the Old Testament. We may proceed with Hebrews chapter 11. Now faith is expecting an assurance, evidence of the facts not being seen. For by this were the elders accredited. And I'm going to discuss a few of the differences among the manuscripts here because that will help us understand the language of the passage as well, I hope. The 3rd century papyrus, P13, has these first two verses to read. Now faith is expecting a departure from works, the evidence not being seen, for by it were the elders accepted. However, for the context of the reading of P13, we are compelled to render the Greek word pragma as works, where in our translation it is facts, because of the other differences in the language and the context of the verse. Liddell and Scott define this word pragma, and we will need this definition in a few moments as well, as that which has been done, pragma, and a deed, an act, facts, a thing, a matter, or an affair, depending on the context, among other things. It seems to us that the scribe of P13 may have had an agenda in this instance, as it clearly contradicts the circumstances of the Old Testament. The word order being changed slightly, the word apostasis, which is a departure, was written where all of the other ancient manuscripts have hypostasis, which is a substance or an assurance. Hypostasis, a stasis is a standing. Hypostasis is what lies under what you're standing on. So it's a, a foundation. And in that matter, manner, it's a substance or an assurance. If you're standing on something solid, I gather. And apostasis, apo means away, and, and, and apostasis is a standing away from, so it's a departure, right? The King James Version has the first verse of this chapter to read, <clears throat> Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, reading a parsable verb as a substantive, which in some contexts is okay, and, and often they are. The evidence of things not seen. And this often leaves readers with the impression that Paul is defining faith as the mere act of believing in something unseen, even if that is not what it says. If, even following the King James translation, if faith is the substance of the things which are hoped for, then faith cannot be held within the heart of man, since it must represent some tangible object of any particular hope. In other words, if one is promised a horse, then faith in that instance would be the horse itself, because faith would be the substance of the promise, the substance of what one hopes to receive. However, the participle is not necessarily a substantive, especially without the definite article, and the word pragma is not a mere pronoun, where the King James Version has things. While pragma in the plural may refer to certain things, we feel the rendering is insufficient. The word facts may well have been rendered as matters, 
But in any event where Paul says evidence of the facts not being seen, he refers to the expectation of the assurance, or in many translations, the assurance of the expectation. And that expectation of the assurance is what Paul defines as faith. If one is promised a horse, faith in that promise is an expectation of receiving a horse without actually having seen the horse itself. So the faith, so faith is the belief that a promise shall indeed be fulfilled. That is what Paul is saying here. And therefore, the faith in Christ is an expectation of the materializing of the promises of the Old Testament made in relation to Christ. So the assurance refers to the substance of the Old Testament promises to the patriarchs and not to anything in the imaginations of men. Faith is expecting an assurance And the assurance of the faith to which Paul refers is expressly provided in Scripture. Holding or expecting the assurances of the promises of Scripture, that is the substance of the faith. Even if the evidence of the facts or matters of the promises have not yet been seen. Later in this chapter, Paul tells us what is not seen. Where he says of the Old Testament saints that In faith these all died, not receiving the promises, but having seen them from afar. So it is the fulfillment of the promises which had not yet been seen. And as Paul has explained here in Galatians, Christ is the assurance of that fulfillment. The Old Testament saints saw him coming, but before they died, but they died before he came. And the Hebrews to whom he writes have a surer confirmation where he attests, Paul attests in verse 40 of this chapter, of Yahweh foreseeing for us something better, that not apart from us should they, referring to the Old Testament saints, should they be perfected. So Paul continues in verse 3. By faith we perceive the ages to be furnished by the word of Yahweh, in which that which is seen has not come into being from things visible. If I wanted to add words to my translation, I would write to things from things which are visible, which are short which are, the words which are, certainly being inferred. The word katartizo here is furnished in a past tense, and it may have been rendered put in order or prepared, where the King James Version has framed, and that is also fine. As we expect the word of God to be certain concerning the future, we should also expect it to be certain concerning the past. This is evident in the challenge which Yahweh issued concerning the false gods where he taunted those who follow them in Isaiah chapter 41. And he said from verse 21, Produce your cause, saith Yahweh. Bring forth your strong reasons, saith the king of Jacob. 
let them bring them forth and show us what shall happen. Let them show the former things what they may be that we may consider them and know the later end of them or declare us things for to come. Show the things that are to come hereafter that we may know that ye are gods. Yeah, do good or do evil that we may be dismayed and behold it together. Behold, ye are of nothing and your work of naught. An abomination is he that chooses you, meaning he that chooses to pursue those false gods, those idols who really can't do anything and cannot reveal the past or the future. And if you don't understand the past, according to Isaiah here, you won't understand the future. Let them show the former things what they be that we may consider them and know the later end of them. Here it is evident that, not counting Christ himself, Paul of Tarsus was perhaps the first physicist of the Christian era. Our modern technology perceives that all matter can indeed be reduced to invisible basic components. And while the ancient Greek philosophers had also speculated of these things, here Paul makes a direct and confident assertion in this regard. This is not the only time that Paul made such an assertion. As we may see in Romans chapter 1, where speaking of men who turned away from God, he chastised them and said, because that which they may I'm sorry, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it to them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they were without excuse. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul spoke of this same faith whereby he encourages the Hebrews, I'm sorry, the same faith in Corinthians whereby he encourages the Hebrews here. And he said, For all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace might, through the thanksgiving of many, redound to the glory of God. For which cause we faint not. But though our outward man perish, yet the inward man, the eternal spirit instilled in man by God, is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Then, as he had suggested in Romans, Paul once again made a reference to an unseen realm and the invisible aspects of the creation of God in the first chapter of his epistle to the Colossians, where he wrote, praising God, and said, For by him were all things created, that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. As we had concluded in relation to these things while discussing Hebrews chapter 10, 
we should not be so vain as to imagine that what we can see with our fleshly eyes in this world is all that there is in God's creation. There are many examples refuting that idea in the gospel. But this is also where we must walk a thin line, since merely because we can understand that there is more to the creation of Yahweh than what we can see, we should refrain from creating imaginary worlds out of our own imaginations, out of our own vain deceit. The Apostle John had even warned against this where he said in chapter 3 of his first epistle, Beloved, now we are children of Yahweh, and not yet has it been made manifest what we shall be. We know that if he is made manifest, meaning if Christ returns, we shall be like him, since we shall see him just as he is. So if John doesn't know, we shouldn't pretend to know. With this, Paul begins to proceed from the Genesis account of creation and through the Old Testament, taking as examples men and women who did wonderful things based on their faith in the Word of God. The first promise of salvation to the Adamic man is found in Genesis chapter 3, in verse 22, where it says, and Yahweh God said, Behold, the man is become of one, as one of us, to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand, and take also of the tree of life, and eat, and live forever. Ostensibly, while the ancient records of every major Adamic culture demonstrate an apparently limited understanding of man's eternal nature in the realm of the spirit, Abraham alone was chosen by God to be the bearer of the true promises of life through Yahweh God in this world, to be fulfilled in his seed through Jacob and Jacob's descendants after him. The very fact that we even have these very similar ancient myths from so many white nations which have been eclipsed by history informs us that this interpretation is sound. But the Modern and Christian nations of Europe are, for the most part, the progeny of Abraham through Jacob. And it is not a coincidence that they alone had directly received and that they had borne the gospel of Christ, who represents the fulfillment of those promises to Abraham. No other races received the gospel from the apostles, although pockets of the children of Israel received it in various old world places outside of Europe. Neither is it a coincidence that with the coming of the gospel, the pagan myths were laid aside. And that is because the better promise in Christ is a better understanding of the things which the Adamic race had always believed from the beginning. although various branches of the race had their own embellishments. Here Paul asserts that the promises of reconciliation to God and eternal life were manifest from the beginning as he first goes through the patriarchs 
from Abel down to Abraham. Then he seems to magnify the promises once he gets to Abraham and continues to illustrate the manifestations of faith amongst the ancient Israelites. By faith, Abel offered to Yahweh a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he was accredited to be righteous, having testified of Yahweh by his gifts, and being slain because of it, he still speaks. Here we have done something contrary, once again, to every other translation we have seen, where we translated the phrase, having testified of God by his gifts, or having testified of Yahweh by his gifts. Now, we maintain the veracity of our translation. One objection to our translation informed us that the verb being in the present tense, Abel cannot still be speaking because he is dead. And while I won't write it into the into the notes for this um, for this program, this was the contention of a clown whose last name sounds like a type of pasta, whose rather absurd criticism of our translation is posted on the internet. However, we would refer to that we would refer that individual to Hebrews twelve twenty four, where Paul attests that the sprinkling of the blood of Christ speaks better things than that of Abel as the King James Version has it. So, ostensibly and metaphorically speaking, Paul, having used the present tense there in that passage as well, through his sacrifice, Abel still speaks, while Christ speaks even better than Abel through his own sacrifice. Here in this passage, Abel is already the subject of the clause, and there is no indication, either grammatical or contextual, that the subject has changed. The verb, having testified, is a present active participle, and maybe it may have better been rendered as testifying, as Paul inferred in Hebrews 12.24 that Abel still speaks to his bloodshed. Both the verb and the word for God are in the genitive case. And the phrase in the Greek word order quite literally reads in English of or from having testified by the gifts of him or his, by the, his gifts of God. Paul uses the genitive form of the participle to show that Abel's having been accredited to be righteous is of or from his testifying by or through his gifts of God. In other words, the fact that Abel was accredited came from Abel's having testified of Yahweh by his gifts. Thus, the translation of the text here is simple and it's very literal. If God were testifying of Abel's gifts, as the popular translations have it, the word for God should have been in the nominative case, and the phrase for gifts should be in the accusative case rather than in the dative case. And the preposition epi, which is the word by or through, would not have been necessary at all, 
So for all of these reasons, in spite of every other mainstream translation and every every student of seminary Greek, we stand by our translation of this passage as being the correct translation. Here Paul only informs us that Abel's sacrifice was better than Cain's. And all things being equal, we may be left to wonder why. Many commentators follow the idea posited in Josephus' Antiquities. And it at one time made sense to me that Cain had forced the ground, very much like the devils commonly do today. But we do not agree with Josephus, as there is no indication of scripture in Scripture itself that upholds his thesis, even if it seems credible. Other commentators look to these sacrifices themselves, making suppositions about the blood of a living animal, as Abel was a shepherd, compared to the fruits of the ground offered by Cain, as Cain was a farmer. However, those arguments are also conjectural to a fault, as there is no basis for believing that blood was required as a sacrifice for sin at such an early time. And in fact, Paul of Tarsus himself had written in Romans chapter 5 that until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law sin not being imputed, there was certainly no need for blood sacrifice. Rather, both men offered according to the fruits of their own labors, which seems to be fair and reasonable, as outside of the law, Christians are expected only to give according to their ability. 1 Corinthians 16.2, 1 Peter chapter 4. However, there are several ways in Scripture to demonstrate that Cain was not the legitimate son of Adam, in spite of the English or Greek texts of Genesis 4.1. It is demonstrable that the only passage which states such a thing is grammatically corrupt, and several scriptures stand in refutation of it. So the Apostle John in his first epistle had written that Cain was from of the wicked one and slaughtered his brother, and with delight he slaughtered him, because his deeds were evil, but those of his brother righteous. So Seth was a replacement for Abel, while Cain did not need such a replacement, as he was never Adam's proper heir. For that reason, two men were directly referred to as devils by Christ, both Cain and the Edomite, Judas Iscariot. Ostensibly, Abel's sacrifice was better than that of Cain, because Abel, being the rightful heir, stood up for the natural order of the laws of Yahweh God, and asserted his position as family priest, whereby he was found righteous, his sacrifice was accepted, and Cain's sacrifice would never have been accepted. By faith, Enoch was translated, not to see death, and was not found because Yahweh translated him. For before the translation, he was accredited to be well-pleasing to Yahweh. And that word for um, 
translation translated. The verb is metatithani. It basically means to transfer something from one place to another. The only other biblical figure who did not see death was Elijah. It may be an assurance to Christians, however, that Moses did see death. Yet he appeared at the transfiguration on the mount along with Elijah, an event which is recorded in both Matthew chapter 17 and in Luke chapter 9. The so-called canonical scriptures do not inform us of Enoch to any great extent. It only says in Genesis chapter 5 that Enoch lived 60 and 5 years and begot Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he begot Methuselah 300 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were 360 and 5 years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Then besides this mentioned by Paul, he appears in the genealogy of Christ, which is provided in Luke, and in a passage in the brief epistle of Jude. And that's it. (coughs) Excuse me. In Jude, we learn that Enoch was reckoned as a prophet, where the apostle wrote, and Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord come with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince or convict all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and all of their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Since Jude must have had access to writings by Enoch in order to make this citation, we may imagine that the writings attributed to Enoch and found among the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are from the same time as the Apostles, may certainly be credible and worthy of our attention. As a digression, where Jude asserts that Enoch is seventh from Adam, we may see once again that Cain was not of Adam. This is apparent because Enoch was the sixth generation from Adam. As we read the generations in the genealogy in Genesis chapter 5, Adam, Seth, Enos, Canaan, Mahaliel, Jared, and then Enoch. That would make Enoch sixth from Adam. So to understand Jude, we must add either Cain or Abel to the list of the firstborn of Adam's generations, which is evidently what Jude must be referring to. If we add Cain, we must wonder why Seth was a replacement for Abel. And if so, how could we omit Abel? We would have to have nine. We cannot, so we must omit Cain and add Abel, whom Seth replaced, and understand that Cain never belonged in the list in the first place. A similar predicament becomes manifest in 2 Peter chapter 2, where that apostle calls Noah the eighth preacher of righteousness, and Cain must once again be excluded. And Paul continues in reference to Enoch. But without faith, it is impossible to please. 
Indeed, it is necessary for one approaching Yahweh to believe that he is, and for those seeking him, he becomes a rewarder. There is a proof of the faith. I'm sorry, this is a proof of the faith. But it is generally only manifest to the individual who experiences it. On the other hand, it is impossible to, con to convince those of the scoffers who have not had such an experience. Our option is to believe the testimony of this great cloud of witnesses, as Paul later refers to them, and hope for such an experience for ourselves, or to ignore them and continue in doubt. As for those seeking God, Paul had spoken to the Athenians, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 17, and he said in reference to the descendants of Adam that Yahweh had made of one blood, and the word blood is added to the text in the King James Version, all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, <clears throat> and has determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, a reference to the division of the Adamic families at Genesis chapter 10 verse 25 and Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 8, that they should seek the Lord, if happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. Of all those Adamic families who were cut loose to seek the Lord, Abraham was chosen so that Yahweh God would execute his will for man through Abraham. By faith, Noah was warned. Being cautious about things not yet seen, he prepared a vessel for preservation of his house, by which he condemned the society and of that righteousness in accordance with faith, he became the heir. From the wisdom of Sirach, chapter 44, Enoch pleased the Lord and was translated, being an example of repentance to all generations. Noah was found perfect and righteous. In the time of wrath, he was taken in exchange for the world. Therefore, was he left as a remnant under the earth when the flood came. An everlasting covenant was made in him that all flesh should, know, should perish no more by the flood. Noah was chosen explicitly because he was perfect in his generations. And therefore we see that the maintenance of racial integrity is an important component of the faith of which Paul speaks. And an important component in pleasing God. The man in the garden sinfully ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and was told that as a remedy he would find eternal life if he grasped onto the tree of life. And Paul says in verse 8, By faith Abraham being called had obeyed to go out into a place which he was going to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he would go. Paul is referring to the first recorded interaction of Yahweh and Abraham, which is found in Genesis chapter 12. Now Yahweh had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, 
and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great. And thou shalt be a blessing, and I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curses thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So we see that Abraham went out not knowing where he would go. As for the promise concerning all the families of the earth, many commentators insist <clears throat> that that may include families of other races who did not descend from Noah. However, in Genesis chapter 10, only two chapters prior to the call of Abraham, we read of the descendants of Japheth in verse 5. By these were the isles of the nations divided in their lands, every one after his tongue, after their families, in their nations. Then we read of Ham in verse 20. These are the sons of Ham, after their families, after their tongues, in their countries, and in their nations. Then we read of the sons of Shem in verse 31. These are the sons of Shem, after their families, after their tongues, in their lands, and in their nations. And finally, of all the sons of Noah, we read in Genesis chapter 10, verse 32, these are the families of the sons of Noah, after their generations, in their nations, and by these were the nations divided in the earth, or in the land, after the flood. Two chapters later, these are all the families of the earth, which is not the planet, but the land upon which the race inhabited, as they are the only families within the biblical context. And they were the families which were within the scope of Abraham's consciousness. The families of other races, which are never a concern of the scripture, cannot be justly forced into this Genesis chapter 12 context. This is why we have a genealogy and the mention of all these families in Genesis chapter 10. So that we may recognize these nations. Wow. Only a dishonest clown would try to squeeze non-Adamic people into Genesis 12.3. If all of the world's races were descended from Adam, the identity of the families of Noah would not even matter, and therefore there would be no need for such a genealogy. Yet, history proves that all of the descendants of Noah were white, and we can identify them with this same list. Then in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 9, By faith he, meaning Abraham, sojourned in a land of the promise, a land of the promise, as an alien having dwelt in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the joint heirs of that same promise, <coughs> in a land of the promise, where the King James Version and others have relocated the definite article, and most, but not all, of the popular translations follow. We may contend that other scriptures show that there was ultimately more than one land of promise for the children of Israel which is fully evident in Deuteronomy 32.8 and in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 10. 
Here, however, Paul does refer to the land of Canaan, and that is where the patriarchs dealt, dwelt in tents until Jacob went with his sons to Egypt. And this period of dwelling in tents was 215 years. And the period of the Israelites in Egypt was 215 years. That's Paul's 430 years between the call of Abraham and the giving of the Lord Sinai. And the time can be arrived at simply by counting the years from the call of Abraham to the birth of Isaac to the birth of Jacob to the time when Jacob went to Egypt at 130-something years old. And that's 215 years if you check it out. This may be conjectural, but dwelling in tents, their stature remained humble and never being perceived as a threat by their enemies. Ostensibly, they were never a target and therefore they were able to dwell harmlessly among them. That's how it works. When men have the protection of Yahweh God, they do not need walls. This we see in Zechariah chapter 2, in another context, where it speaks of the captivity. And the prophet writes, And behold, the angel that talked with me went forth, and another angel went out to meet him, and said unto him, Run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem, meaning Jerusalem in captivity, shall be inhabited as towns without walls, for the multitude of men and cattle therein. For I, saith Yahweh, will be under her a wall of fire round about, and will be the glory in the midst of her. To this we may compare, or contrast, I should say, 2 Chronicles chapter 12, where it is explained that Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, strengthened his defenses and forsook the law of Yahweh. So he was promptly overpowered by the Egyptians. Strengthening his defenses didn't do him any good, and he was humbled. Paul continues to speak of Abraham. For he was awaiting a city, having those foundations of which Yahweh is craftsman and fabricator. And here Paul makes an analogy of this aspect of the life of Abraham that he dwelt in no city because he awaited the city of God. In Psalm 46 we read, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore will we not fear, though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof. There is a river, the streams whereof shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her, and that right early. <coughs> in other words, he will help her quickly. While Jerusalem was an ancient type, the eternal city is described in the closing chapters of the Revelation in very much the same manner. And Paul says in verse 11, By faith also, Sarah herself received strength for a deposit of seed and beyond the usual age, 
the majority text says, and she gave birth beyond the usual age. Since she regarded as trustworthy he who promised. In Romans chapter 9, Paul explains that the children of Isaac are the seed of the promise, where he says, from verse 8, I'm sorry, I'm hitting the teacup more than I usually do tonight. And it's a teacup. They which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. Where Paul refers to the children of the flesh... It is in contrast to the children of the promise, which are through Isaac. And then, as Paul explains in the verse which follows, through Jacob. So the children of Ishmael, the sons of Keturah, and the descendants of Esau are all excluded because, even though they are Abraham's seed according to the flesh, that's what's meant there by children of the flesh. You can't spiritualize this and say, oh, they're fleshly people. No, that's not how Paul uses the term at all. Abraham's other children, those except for the ones through Jacob, are all children of the flesh because even though they are Abraham's seed according to the flesh, they are simply not included in the promises of Yahweh. They were all excluded. For that reason, Paul once again referred to the miraculous birth of Sarah in Romans chapter 4 and said, For the promise that he, meaning Abraham, should be the heir of the world or to society was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void, meaning that just because people are keeping the law doesn't mean they're going to be the heirs. For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of no effect. Because the law works wrath, for where no law is, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be by grace. So we see that grace comes to those who don't keep the law. To the end, the promise might be sure to all the seed, because really none of us have kept the law. Not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations. So it was obviously a little more difficult than just God waving a magic wand over alien nations and telling them to believe in Jesus and they'll be Abraham's seed. That's a totally false interpretation of the New Testament, which is contrary to all scripture <clears throat> Abraham against hope believed in hope the promises of God that his seed would come from his loins and become many nations that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken so shall thy seed be other nations aren't going to be Abraham's seed Abraham's seed are going to become many nations and being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body dead. When he was about a hundred years old, 
neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully persuaded that what he promised, he was also able to perform. God did not promise any substitute for Abraham's seed. Rather, God himself insisted that Abraham's seed come out of Abraham's loins. Then, after discussing the promise to Sarah made in Romans chapter 9, where Paul had also said that they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. He went on to say that, and not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, meaning one promise, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works, but of him that calleth, it was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Paul's need to explain this was to explain the apostasy in Judea, which he discussed at the beginning of that same chapter. And here, as the histories affirm, he alludes to the fact that many of those in Israel are not of Israel because they are descendants of Esau not quite two centuries before the ministry of Christ, after the Edomites had moved into the lands of Judah and Israel in the time following the Assyrian deportations, the Assyrian and Babylonian deportations, they were all converted to Judaism by the Maccabees. And Herod and many of those whom he had appointed to offices in Judea were Edomites, the opposition to Christ. However, through those deportations and the history of Israel preceding them, those many nations promised to Abraham had come into being through the children of Israel. So Paul says here in verse 12, on which account even from one have been born and these being dead, meaning that from one promise had been born and these being dead, meaning that Abraham and Sarah were very advanced in age and could not expect to have a child. Just as the stars of heaven in multitude and as the innumerable sand which is by the shore of the sea. Here Paul paraphrases from Genesis 22:17 where Yahweh says to Abraham that because he was willing to sacrifice Isaac on Yahweh's account, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven, and as the sand of the sea on the seashore. And thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. And after Jacob inherits the promises made to Abraham. It is also spoken of him in Genesis 32.12 that Yahweh had said to him, I will surely do thee good and make thy seed as the sand of the sea, which cannot be multitude, numbered for multitude. <coughs> now Flavius Josephus, writing a few years after Paul, informs us that beyond the river Euphrates, which is far to the north of 
Palestine at the top of what we know today as Turkey and Iraq. Far to the north of the river Euphrates was an innumerable multitude of the Israelites from the Assyrian deportations. Josephus knew that. To him they were Alans and Goths and related tribes, the Germanic people. To the Greek geographers, that's about who was dwelling there, the Scythians, the Goths, the Alans, the Germanic people, the Chimerians, and related tribes, remnants of them because most of them by this time had moved into Europe. The entire key to Paul's ministry is finding this band of people that became many nations who were as the stars of heaven in multitude and as the innumerable sand which is by the shore. And Paul did know they Paul did know where they were. And he did bring to them the gospel of Christ because that was his assignment. So he went to the Romans and the Greeks and the Galatians. The Galatians being a portion of the Germanic tribes, the Galatahi. That's the key to Paul's ministry, that Paul knew where the seed is. He knew it from reading the classics. And all those nations that Paul went to they didn't exist at the time of Abraham when the promises were made because they descended from Abraham. Then he says in verse 13, In faith these all died, not receiving the promises, but having seen them from afar, and welcoming and professing that they are strangers and sojourners upon the earth. And this is actually an indirect challenge to his readers. As Christ had said in the Gospel, in John chapter 8, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it, and was glad. So Paul, speaking of these very Hebrews, as well as of the scattered Israelites of the nations, wrote in Romans chapter 15, now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers and that the nations might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. For this cause I will confess to thee among the nations and sing unto thy name. Having faith is believing that the promises will be delivered. The substance of the faith is the actual delivery. Here Paul elevates his Hebrew readers as if they had actually received the promises which are fulfilled in Yahshua Christ. Christ alone is the mediator of a new covenant with Israel and Israel once reconciled to Yahweh God through Christ. The substance of the promises begins to materialize into reality. There is a facet of scripture wherein historically the children of Israel are informed that they would dwell in lands that were not their own. So in the law in Leviticus chapter 25, even in 
even before the children of Israel divide the land of Canaan for themselves, we read, the land shall not be sold forever, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. Then much later, and during the kingdom era of Judah, it says in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, in words attributed to David, Now therefore, our God, we thank thee and praise thy glorious name. But who am I, and what is my people, that we should be able to offer so willingly after this sort? For all things come of thee, and of thine own we have given thee. For we are strangers before thee, and sojourners, as were all our fathers on the days on the earth. Our days on the earth are as a shadow, and there is none abiding. Interestingly, this works in the physical plane as well as the spiritual. Interestingly, Abraham descended from Arphaxad, one of the sons of Shem. Of all the sons of Shem, Elam, the Persians, that could be, that, that's a solid historical connection. Asher, the Assyrians, Arphaxad, Lud, the Lydians of Anatolia, and Aram, the Syrians, the original Syrians, the white Syrians. Out of all the sons of Shem, only Arphaxad, cannot be identified with any particular country in ancient history. And the land where Abraham's fathers dwelt was called Padanaram, or the plain of Aram. So Abraham's fathers were dwelling in land belonging to Aram. Therefore, the children of Israel, looking forward or looking back, had no identifiable ancestral homeland of their own. So it also says in the law, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, when the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. This could not describe the land of Canaan, from which many other descendants of Adam were displaced, as well as the Kenites and the other accursed races, the Rephaim. But at this early time, Europe was to a great extent unsettled. Parts of it were settled, but most of it was unsettled. And it would be the children of Israel who would, be, who would begin to settle it. Next, Paul uses this experience of the patriarchs, which also became the national experience of Israel, as an analogy, and he says, For they, saying such things, make clear that they are seeking a fatherland. And if indeed they remembered from where they had come from, they would have had opportunity to return. It is not that Abraham and Sarah did not know where they came from, and in fact, Abraham and Isaac each had their own sons, Jacob and then Isaac and then Jacob, to go to the land of Abraham's kin for their wives. Of course, in Isaac's case, it was Abraham's servant. Rather, 
Paul means to relate that they did not bother to hold in remembrance, or as we may say, they did not long for the land of their fathers. So therefore they did not bother to attempt to return. They never attempted to return, holding instead the expectation that Yahweh would indeed fulfill his promises of providing a better place for them. So Paul continues, But now they reach for a better, that is, a heavenly place, on which account Yahweh is not ashamed of them to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. There is a spiritual dimension to being strangers and sojourners on the earth, <coughs> which the physical represents as a type or an analogy. The Apostle Peter wrote in the second chapter of his first epistle, addressing his intended readers, who are scattered Israelites, as he also explains here where he cites Hosea, but you are an elect race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, so that you should proclaim the virtues for which from out of darkness you have been called into the wonder of his light, who at one time were not a people, but now are the people of Yahweh, those who have not been shown mercy, but are now shown mercy. Beloved, I exhort as emigrants or strangers and sojourners, that you abstain from fleshly desires which make war against the soul. If the children of Israel are born from above, as Yahshua Christ was from above, then they are indeed strangers and sojourners on the earth. So Peter alludes to this same thing a little earlier in chapter 12 of his epistle, and he says that being engendered from above, I'm sorry, in chapter 1 of his epistle, must be a fat-fingered typographical error. Chapter 1, verse 23. Being engendered from above, not from corruptible parentage, but from incorruptible, by the word of Yahweh who lives and abides, since all flesh is as grass, and all of its glory as a flower of grass, the grass withers, and the flower falls off. So while Paul informs us that Yahweh had prepared a city for the patriarchs, speaking allegorically of a heavenly place, Yahshua Christ had told his disciples similarly, where in John chapter 14, he suggested that a place was already prepared. Your hearts must not be troubled. You have faith in Yahweh, and you have faith in me. In the house of my father there are many abodes. There's a lot of contention over the exact meaning of that word. But if not, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I should go and prepare a place for you, I come again and take you to myself, in order that where I am, you also would be. And where I go, you know the way. Because of these promises, now evident from the Old Testament as well as the New, Paul continues to speak of Abraham's actions, which resulted from his belief that God could indeed accomplish what he had promised. 
By faith, Abraham, being tried, had offered up Isaac. And the best beloved being offered up took upon himself the promises, in reference to whom it was said, that in Isaac shall your offspring be called. Paul quotes Genesis chapter 21 verse 12, where Isaac is the son where Isaac is distinguished from Ishmael, and it says, And God said unto Abraham, Let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad, and because of thy bondwoman, in all that Sarah has said unto thee, hearken unto her voice, for in Isaac shall thy seed be called. The use of the term monogenes here, which is a Greek word that literally means only begotten, or actually only born. The use of this term, where there are clearly other sons, informs us that the term must represent a Hebrew idiom, and therefore it should not necessarily be literally translated as only begotten. The translators of the Septuagint must have understood this idiom where they wrote, Thy son, the beloved one, in reference to Isaac in Genesis 22-2, where in the King James Version, the corresponding Hebrew was literally translated as, Thy son, thine only. In his own writing. Flavius Josephus also used this Hebrew idiom in the same manner on two occasions, in Antiquities Book 1 and in Antiquities Book 20. The noted translator of Josephus, William Whiston, makes note of this idiom at those points in his translation and shows that the term was used metaphorically for best beloved or most loved, as we have written here in this passage of Hebrews, and as the Septuagint translators clearly understood when they translated Genesis 22-2 into Greek from Hebrew. For this reason, we have translated the same term in the same manner where it appears in several other places in the Gospel, at, in the Gospel and the Epistles of John. This term monogenes appears only in John's Gospel and in John's Epistle and in this one place in Hebrews. This is important to us because with this understanding it becomes manifest that by no means do those passages which refer to Christ as God's only begotten Son, which is an idiom for most beloved Son, conflict with the statements describing the children of Adam or the children of Israel as the children of God. Christ, the firstborn among many brethren, is the most beloved of the many sons and daughters of Yahweh. In reference to the sacrifice of Isaac, Paul continues, inferring that it is the ability of Yahweh even to raise from the dead, from which he also rescued him 
in an analogy. The phrase rescued him in an analogy may have been rendered something like preserved him in a parable. So Paul infers that Isaac's being rescued from being sacrificed was itself an analogy for the ultimate ability of the of God to resurrect people from the grave. So it is an analogy for the ultimate rescue of the children of God from the grave. Ostensibly, as it is evident from the writings of the nations of the ancient world, when a man placed something on the altar of God, the object became dedicated to that God, becoming the property of the God and disposed of as the God saw fit. Of course, in the pagan world, that left the fate of the dedication up to the priests, since there were no real gods. However, Isaac is the only individual ever offered up willingly to be dedicated to Yahweh, the ever-living and true God, at the request of God. So Isaac was sanctified, dedicated to the purposes of God. That would include both the children of Jacob, whom Paul describes as vessels of mercy, as well as the children of Esau, whom Paul described as vessels of destruction, in Romans chapter 9. So Paul writes concerning these and says, and by faith, concerning coming things, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau. Isaac had blessed Jacob first and out of place, an arrangement which was made by Rebekah his mother because she knew that her elder son Esau was not worthy of the inheritance of the firstborn. Paul concurs and calls Esau a profane man and a fornicator here in Hebrews chapter 12. We shall discuss Esau further when we present that chapter later in this series. Esau begged his father for a blessing, and Isaac relented, but Isaac could not restore to him the birthright promises which he had already passed on to Jacob. Now Paul sets Esau aside and continues with Jacob. By faith, Jacob, dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and made obeisance upon the top of his staff. Here Paul quotes from the Septuagint version of Genesis chapter 47, verse 31, where in Breton's English it says from verse 28, And Jacob survived seventeen years in the land of Egypt. And Jacob's days of the years of his life were a hundred and forty-seven years. And the days of Israel drew nigh for him to die. And he called his son Joseph and said to him, If I have found favor before thee, put thy hand under my thigh, and thou shalt execute mercy and truth toward me, so as not to bury me in Egypt. And the placing of the hand under the thigh was a token of early covenant making promise making but I will sleep with my fathers and thou shalt carry me up out of Egypt and bury me in their sepulcher and he said meaning Joseph said I will do according to thy word and he said swear to me and he swore to him 
and Israel did reverence, leaning on the top of his staff. Soon thereafter, as it is recorded in Genesis chapter 48, Jacob fell ill, and summoning Joseph, he had blessed the sons of Joseph individually. It is notable that Paul cited this blessing to these Hebrews, since demonstrably none of them are of the posterity of Joseph. Rather, they are ostensibly descended exclusively from the small remnant of the tribes of Judah, Benjamin, and Levi, which had returned from the Babylonian captivity six centuries earlier. The blessings to Joseph were never fulfilled in Palestine. But it is very explicit that the sons of Joseph were to become a multitude of nations. Jacob blessed all of the tribes before, before his departure, as it is recorded in Genesis chapter 45, 49, I'm sorry. But here Paul seems to have intentionally mentioned this more, more specific blessing instead. Doing this, once again, Paul seems to be discreetly defending the statements which he made at the time of his arrest in Jerusalem, for which the Judeans hated him. These elements of Paul's exposition support our contention that this epistle was written in Caesarea shortly after Paul's arrest, as he was kept under bonds in Caesarea for two full years. Luke records in Acts chapter 22 that Paul was speaking concerning his commission from God, and we read, And I said, Prince, they know that I was imprisoning and flaying those believing in you throughout the assembly halls. And when they spilled the blood of Stephen, your witness, even I myself was standing by and consenting and keeping the garments of those slaying him. And he said to me, meaning Christ, said to Paul, and he said to me, go, because I shall send you off to distant nations. That was Paul's testimony before the people of Jerusalem when he was arrested. And Luke writes, now they listened until this world word, and raised their voice, saying, Take such as him from the earth, for it is not fit that he lives. Then upon their crying and hurling, crying out and hurling their garments and throwing dirt into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the encampment, saying to interrogate him, meaning Paul, with a whip that he may discover for what reason they addressed him thusly. These distant nations... to which Paul was sent were the nations descended from Joseph and the other tribes of ancient Israel that had been scattered abroad. The nations of Abraham's seed that Paul describes in Romans chapter 4. Their acceptance of the gospel demonstrated the truth of the words of the prophets concerning Israel made manifest in the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham, and they constitute the substance of the faith. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.